Hi, everybody. My name is Andy Troutman. Uh, I'm a senior manager here in AWS. I mostly focus on our software developer tools, both for our internal systems and, uh, and processes, so the tools that Amazon and AWS engineers use, as well as uh, a couple public services in our code suite family, so code deploy, code pipelines, uh, that whole collection. I uh, hope everyone's having a good reInvent so far. Every, every year I get to talk to a lot of customers. It's always fun. I always get asked the exact same question when they find out that I work uh, in our developer tooling space, and they always ask, how, uh, how does Amazon develop software? How do you guys ship so many features? Uh, how do you um, uh, innovate so quickly? Uh, that, and, and I always ask the exact same question when they ask me that, which is, why do you care, right? <laughs> so why do you actually want to know how Amazon does things? Uh, I think that the reason that most people want to know is because they think that Amazon's process looks a little something like this, right? So that, uh, that we have locked away a bunch of unicorns in a vault, and we tell those unicorns that we want them to innovate, and then software appears on a production server, and, uh, and magic's happening. And essentially, they're asking me because they want to steal my unicorn, and they want to take it back to their company, and they want to use it for their own nefarious purposes. And on the surface, Amazon's process is pretty interesting. Um, we do way north of 50 million deployments in a year. Uh, we have tens of thousands of, of builders across the company uh, working on things, on interesting projects all the time. That comes out to more than a deployment every second. So we're, we are constantly shipping code to somewhere in the world all the time. Um, but I can tell you that the actual process of writing software at Amazon and, uh, and being in that ecosystem is much more akin to sausage making than it is magical unicorns. So if anything, we have unicorn sausage and not actual unicorns. <laughs> um, uh, this is a good news because um, that doesn't mean you have to try and steal a unicorn if you want to emulate or imitate Amazon's software process. Uh, instead, you can just steal our tools. So, uh, when people ask me about this and they ask me how we do things, I tell them that a lot of our processes, the way we develop software, is really codified in the, in the tools and services that we've built internal to our company and more and more that we're externalizing uh, to, to AWS customers. So a lot of the tools we built before AWS even existed, back when we were just Amazon.com, uh, many of those still perpetuate in Amazon's ecosystem today, which is extremely rare. Most things... Uh, are overcome by events and scale kind of early in their life cycle, and we tend to rebuild things again and again. But our tooling stuff is stuck around, so we think we did something right, uh, mostly by accident. But the good news is, of course, that um, as we are moving to AWS, we're looking for opportunities to make these tools available to our customers, right? So uh, many of the things we've built internally, we've also externalized, which literally means you can steal our unicorn. You can just steal the tools, and I'll talk about how we use our tools and some of the uh, internal aspects of the Amazon culture, and uh, hopefully you can end up with a process that uh, works for you. I would say if you try and outright copy Amazon's process, it's not really going to work. Every uh, company, and as you'll see, even within Amazon, every team operates a little dif differently, right? So we shoot for a baseline of expectations, and then we let people experiment and deviate a lot through that. So uh, a quick overview of what we're going to talk about. I'll start with um, just a quick whirlwind tour of Amazon's technical and cultural landscape. I think this is kind of the foundational stuff that uh, it, it's the way Amazon thinks and it's the way we uh, approach problems. Uh, this is important if you want to be able to copy Amazon. Uh, then we'll talk about our tooling philosophy, some of the ways we invest in internal software development tooling. Uh, how, do, how, we, how that works uh, within the Amazon ecosystem and wh what we think uh, is good and bad about it. Uh, we'll, then we'll, we'll actually dive into like a code change. So I'm not going to um, show, it could be any arbitrary change. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll use a little dot to represent our code change, but we'll talk about all the processes that it flows through on its way to production. So we'll start with the code review process, the build process. We'll talk about uh, a thing that we do with tier one services called a pre-mortem, which is basically thinking about all the horrible things that can go wrong before they happen. Uh, then uh, we'll talk about pipelining, so how changes flow through uh, in succession. Uh, the actual deployment process, where we actually get to put uh, new software on a new virtual machine, or an old virtual machine, or hardware, uh, a drone, all over the place. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about managing infrastructure. So um, the real secret sauce to Amazon is that 
is not just that we think about this from uh, shipping new versions of the wetworks, the software that's going to go onto the virtual machine, but the whole ecosystem of other web services that we depend on, the infrastructure and how it's configured and tuned, all of that is incredibly important to be able to being able to run a, a critical tier one service. And so we'll go into a, a bunch of details on uh, how we actually manage that side of it. And then we'll talk about the auditing or the continuous process. So uh, the process definitely doesn't end once a, a code change hits production. That's really kind of the starting gun. Uh, and Amazon invests a lot in kind of looking uh, at refining our best practices, capturing risk, and continuously testing things in production to make sure things aren't deviating from expectations. So some of the worst outages occur not at the moment you make a software change and realize something went wrong, but two or three days later when you realize you've released something really nefarious and you've had time for it to kind of gestate in the ecosystem. Um, I should have time at the end for uh, some thoughts and Q&A. I'll probably do Q&A down uh, off the stage, so um, stick around. I'm happy to stay and, uh, and chat as long as people want. Okay, so let's meet our hero. Um, if we're gonna talk about uh, the life of a code change to a tier one service, we need a code change. So in this, this is our humble code change. Um, he's the hero of our story. His goal is to get to production, add customer value, and make everybody happy. Um, in order to do that, let's talk about the ecosystem that he's gonna live in. So uh, culturally speaking, um, you've probably heard this, uh, this story. Uh, what is, someone asked uh, Jeff Bezos many years ago, what's the sweet spot of an engineering team, right? How big should it be? How many people should it have on it? Uh, we typically say at Amazon that we want two pizza teams, which is uh, the amount of engineers that we can hire that we can feed with two pizzas, right? So <laughs> the, the goal is a team should be relatively small in size. If you go and look at the average team size across all of Amazon, it is still uh, eight engineers, uh, sorry, eight people. It doesn't necessarily mean that engineers, that's, uh, as we'll talk about, that's whoever you want to hire for the team. So teams are relatively small in size. Uh, those team, we, we want small teams because it lowers the communication costs, right? Uh, larger teams mean that uh, driving consensus across the entire group becomes much more harder. It's harder to get everyone into a room. It's harder to convince everyone. It really slows down the process. Uh, eight is big enough that you can build something significant. Um, you can, of course, build something with smaller teams, but eight feels like you can really get quite a bit done. Uh, and you can also set up a DevOps model, which I'll talk about a little bit as well. Uh, Amazon is big believers in the people that are writing the software, kind of owning it end to end. And an eight-person team is a pretty healthy-sized team. Uh, so that's what we shoot for. Uh, of course, you'll find deviations, teams as small as two and as big as dozens. But, but for the most part, average team size is still eight engineers. The other aspect of Amazon's culture that we should probably talk about is our culture of ownership. Um, back before uh, DevOps became a, a word that was used uh, in the larger culture, Amazon uh, really emphasized this concept of what we called ownership at the time, which was really kind of two things. One, every team is structured at Amazon like a little miniature startup. When people say, what does Amazon look like organizationally, I always tell them it's structured like a federation of startups more than it's structured like a single corporate entity. And what I usually mean by that is that a lot of the decision-making that a team has uh, is, is bottoms up. There is very little in the way of top-down mandate at Amazon. We give uh, teams a business problem. We say, this is your area to go deliver on for the customer, and then we let teams make a lot of decisions. We let people decide the team composition, so uh, the ratio of product managers to engineers to dev managers uh, to TPMs. Um, the, the team goes and, and self-organizes from that perspective. The team decides um, how they're going to measure their success, both from the customer perspective, so what are their key metrics that they're gonna look at? Uh, could be adoption or it could be something more specific. They also define their operational metrics, right? So what are the key uh, metrics that you should be looking at to be confident that your service is healthy and functional and per excuse me, performing as, as expected for the customer? Uh, the team really does own the whole thing end to end, right? They're, they define uh, technology as well. Uh, uh, I, the last time I checked Amazon's code repositories, we had uh, over 30 different languages in Amazon. It's pretty easy to start naming common language and then you really start to get into a long tail of weird stuff, right? So, and, uh, and that's just to illustrate, like teams really are empowered. Go pick the technology and the tool to do your job. And uh, we want you to optimize for the customer and not optimize for kind of uh, a high level process. 
Once the, one of these teams is formed, once this little miniature startup is formed, everyone on the team is expected to own the product end-to-end. -end. And when we say own, we really mean kind of the whole aspect of what it means to deliver a service and operate it, right? So as an engineer at Amazon uh, on a tier one service or any other, you're absolutely going to be expected to write the software, write your own testing, uh, plan the releases, release your software, manage it in production, be on call for it, um, work on business metrics, uh, work on product development. So uh, our engineers are very much, especially on the AWS side of the house, very much involved in part of, in the feedback loop with customers, listening to what customers want, thinking about how we should uh, change the product to accommodate it. Uh, we really do expect everyone to kind of be all in, kind of own the whole process end to end. Um, this is very similar in spirit to a DevOps model. DevOps really is focused on uh, getting the operational people and the engineers kind of embedded together. I think Amazon looks at it a little bit more broadly and says, you know, everyone should be involved in kind of everything that's involved on their, uh, their particular service or product. And this is, again, tenable because we like small teams, right? If we were operating uh, teams that were, you know, uh, five and six dozen people uh, or an organization of hundreds, you really can't have that sense of ownership. The, the product is way too large, complex, and unwieldy. You need to have small teams with a small business focus so they can really, truly kind of dive in and own it. So that's a little bit of Amazon culture. Um, we'll, call, we'll, we'll keep referencing it through the talk. Um, I think it really does, as I said, forms the foundation or at least the mentality of how we develop things at Amazon. The other aspect that's important to understand is Amazon service-oriented architecture. So uh, nearly everything, asterisk, most everything at Amazon, uh, lives in the form of a web service. Uh, so our little code change is gonna live in this little green bubble which represents uh, some microservice somewhere. Uh, web services are great for a lot of reasons, uh, but from the perspective of a software change, there's a couple inherent values. One is every web service has a public interface. Uh, that interface is the contract to anyone who wants to call and get data in or out of that service or manipulate the state of that service. Uh, so it's a contract, right? The contract is good because now we only have one entry and exit point that we have to worry about. This isolates concerns, which is good. Uh, as well as that, um, a large service, so a service like EC2 or S3, is really composed of many services, right? So you could think of EC2 as a, as a collection of web services that cobble together to make the experience of, uh, of EC2. So uh, again, this isolates concerns. We can have a very complicated thing, uh, but making a single change doesn't mean we have to think about the entire system as a whole, typically. There are many parts of it that won't be impacted by the change, won't be uh, changed at all, uh, won't depend on our, our particular change. And because, again, we have these hardened contracts and interfaces that we're all programming to, there's little chance of surprise, right? As long as we're maintaining the, um, the essence of the contract, uh, we can be relatively confident that the ecosystem of other microservices that we use and depend on are not gonna be impacted by our change. Again, everything, we're trying to shrink down things into manageable sizes, right? We shrink our teams down to manageable sizes, and we try to shrink down our software to a place where we can wrap our heads around it, and we don't have to kind of hold the entire state of EC2 in our minds. Another big advantage of services is that you can uh, leverage them, right? So, uh, as a very simple example, IAM, our identity and access management service, is another web service at Amazon that controls permissions and groups and, and how uh, teams are able to access other web services. If EC2 had to invent all of that by hand, they would basically just spend all their time working on IAM and they would never add features to EC2. That's absolutely not what we want. Instead, they can use the public contract that IAM provides and they get a ton of functionality and features of uh, access control for free, right? This is incredibly value, valuable. Again, it lets us compartmentalize different aspects of the customer experience, not worry about them, farm them off to someone else, and then program to a contract. Uh, again, it's extremely helpful when we want to ship code rapidly. Okay, my one slide on the local development process. Uh, the local development process at Amazon is pretty wild, wild west uh, intentionally. Our, our focus when, and when I say the local development process, I mean an individual engineer on their laptop writing code, right? So, or on their virtual machine in the cloud. Uh, this is well before we're actually going to put a change in front of customers. This is an experimentation phase. We really want people to be able to move as quickly as they want here, right? And so people always ask, what does Amazon do for um, a software delivery process? 
And I always say, uh, agile-ish, question mark? Um, I can tell you that if there's any part of Amazon that is uh, completely across the board different, it's how we approach project planning, right? So I would say um, you'll see everything from Scrum with a capital S to Kanban to um, everyone just grab a thing and start typing as quickly as you can. Like, it's, it's completely all over the board. The, the few tenets that we do seem to uh, congregate around is this concept of iterating quickly. So at Amazon, we want to ship everything uh, to production. So any code change that we're working on, the intent is that it's going to go to a customer. A customer is going to interact with it, going to provide us feedback, and we're going to use that as a feedback loop to make the next decision, right? So Amazon, if we do anything um, from a project planning perspective, it really is ship things early, ship small pieces, hear about what the customer says, and then decide what to do with it next. Uh, as I said, it's very wild, wild west in the development environment. Uh, there's no permissions or gating or checking at this point. Uh, it really is the focus of letting uh, the engineer play around with code, experiment, get something to work, figure out how it um, participates. Another, another consequence of our web service architecture is that we can turn anyone's laptop or dev desktop into a microservice, right? So we can actually have uh, even a, a developer box participate in a test environment as, it was a, uh, as if it were a copy of a microservice, right? This is, again, very advantageous because we can actually exper uh, we can experiment against our production dependencies in the web service ecosystem. We can call other things under test and make sure that they're going to compose appropriately. Uh, this drives down the it worked on my desktop phenomenon, right? So uh, everyone, uh, everything works brilliantly on your desktop, and then when you actually have to call your dependencies, things go bad. We encourage people to front load that as much as possible. So even on your desktop, you're really um, mocking, you're, you're really running a local microservice and calling against all of your dependencies. Um, this could sound uh, very scary from the perspective of uh, not releasing dangerous code into production. And the way we hedge that is, uh, that we have a process that begins sort of at code review time, right? And so once you get to the point where you think you have something working and you want to start releasing it into production, that's really when the formal software release process kind of kicks off, right? And at that point, uh, as we'll talk about, we're really focusing on kicking changes out of the process as quickly as possible. So um, that kind of segues in nicely to our tooling philosophy. If you take away anything from this talk, this is probably the slide that's worth, uh, worth looking at. Uh, I see the E is on its own line down there. <laughs> uh, in, our, in our ecosystem uh, at Amazon, <clears throat> excuse me, there's really, uh, the way we fund things is, is through common tooling, right? So what we do first is we build very simple foundational building block services, right? So we will build the simplest possible build service that you could think of, right? Um, we are going to call this script every time, and then we're going to look for a failure code, and that's really all of our build service does. And then we'll make it scale as much as we need to build. Uh, we will build a deployment system that will just put bits on a box and call your scripts. Uh, software release process will build a very simple pipelining tool, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we invest in very simple foundational services, uh, and we make them highly extensible and extendable. The next thing we do is we encourage an open marketplace within Amazon. So teams, individual service teams, these, these, uh, these services, these startups that are out in our ecosystem, they're encouraged to go micro-optimize their software change process for their customer, right? As long as they're using the foundational tools, right? So use the basic stuff, but then extend it or uh, change it or modify it or invest in it as much as you want. And then uh, th those of us who own tools, we just sit back and we watch. So we go in our bunker and we look through the little slits and we see what's going on out in the ecosystem of uh, all these little individual startups building things. And what we typically find is um, winners emerge, right? So people figure out how to test things in a better way. People figure out a faster or safer way to do software updates to their services, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through. Um, and then we fund winners, right? So as soon as we see something kind of getting a foothold, succeeding on more than an individual team, looking like it's going to scale out, we'll, we'll offer to kind of uh, take ownership of that, uh, that component or that plugin, and then we'll make it broadly available to the company, right? So we use uh, every single one of our individual kind of startups as a test lab uh, to experiment on better ways to do things. And then when we find something that seems to be working, we look for ways to kind of fund it broadly, right? So again, this is kind of another one of these flywheels that we use at Amazon. 
we want to make sure that um, we're building basic things that everyone can uh, highly leverage, letting teams kind of micro-optimize when they need to, and then kind of stealing the best ideas and making them, again, globally available. I think a lot of people, when they build a development process at a company, they start with a very rigid set of guidelines, and this absolutely kills innovation. This is something I, I discourage. You need to come up with a set of foundational things that must happen uh, you know, for your own sanity, for your compliance or auditing purposes. But then I really do think you need to open up the door and let people optimize their development process, watch what they do, and steal what seems good. So as I was talking about before, um, we, need an, uh, we need an antagonist, right? So if our software change is our hero, our villain is the process. Right, so uh, like we were talking about before, the, the, the software process is really starts when you have a candidate change and you want to actually start putting it on the server. So for our tier one service, for a mission critical service, uh, it's very wild, wild west. And then once we get to this place where, hey, I want to put this on a server that a customer is going to see, then the process kicks in. The process um, is looking at every single change. It's auditing how the change is going out the door. And from the perspective of our software release process, every single change is absolutely evil, right? So we kind of adopt a mentality that the software release process is just going to assume from the get-go that the change that you were trying to release is nefarious by nature, right? So this changes our mentality a lot. It gets us to think about, really, this is going to be broken. How quickly can we detect that something is broken and mitigate it, right? So the, the whole uh, software release process into production is heavily automated but it's also extremely pessimistic and cautious about any single change. We find that when we get optimistic and say, ah, nothing's ever gonna happen or the worst will never happen, that's exactly when it does, right? So instead of doing that, we kind of adopt this philosophy of changes are bad, let's, let's see if we can catch it before it gets out of the lab. Okay, let's, let's actually start talking about a software release. So changes are born in Git for the most part in Amazon. Uh, Git is, is by far the winner as far as version control goes in the Amazon ecosystem. Uh, but as I said before, so you could view Git as our sort of foundational um, tool or service, and then we've of course extended it and added a bunch of niceties on top of it that we think are advantageous. So we don't run Git, we run Git Farm. Uh, Git Farm is our internal, internal uh, uh, code change repository. When you're using Git Farm, you get a few extra things, right? So anytime you push a piece of code to Git Farm, it's automatically replicated. Just in the same way, if you did an S3 put, you're getting multiple copies of your objects uh, distributed globally so that uh, if anything should happen to one copy, you're not actually gonna lose your data. We do the exact same thing for intellectual property in, the, in terms of code. We make sure that uh, things are replicated uh, in multiple data centers across the world. Um, Git's vanilla access control leaves something to be desired, especially in our environments. So we added a lot of fine-grained access control that is organizationally aware on top of Git. This allows us to do things like access, access control individual files or branches. We can access control those things to groups or individuals or members. Again, for the most part, every piece of code at Amazon is publicly available inside of Amazon. Uh, I guess public is not the right word. <laughs> um, but, uh, but there are some things that are, of course, proprietary, new projects we, that we don't want to leak out globally. Those things need to be, uh, have tighter access control at the beginning. Uh, special secret sauce uh, things may also be restricted in some way. Uh, so those things we want finer grain access control. Because we want to, uh, if we just used vanilla Git, we would basically have to lock down that entire repository. And, and that's a kind of a culturally revulsive thing to, to Amazonians. Many of our developers and our managers don't want a code base to be hidden or locked away. We want it to be available. We want to be able to learn from it. And so we seek to lock down the smallest individual piece of uh, a change that we have to. Um, I'd be remiss to not say that, um, oh, uh, code search. Code search is another thing. So anytime you check in a piece of code to Git Farm, it's automatically indexed and searchable globally. Uh, many teams or many companies typically um, will index things locally for an individual team. So you can go and search uh, all the code that your team owns. Amazon lets you search the entire code base, right? So I can go uh, to our code search tools and I can search um, uh, at, drone, at code in, on Amazon Prime Air. I can go look at any of the AWS services. And the reason we, we do this is, again, we want this ecosystem of learning from each other. Because we are all leveraging each other's web services, we have these hardened contracts, it's incredibly high leverage to be able to go and see how someone else used a web service uh, quickly, you know, rip a piece of their code, steal it, and make use of it for your own 
purposes. If any of you have developed in a large corporate environment where you don't have easy access to all of the source code, it's incredibly frustrating. You basically have to go find the guy or the woman who knows how to make a change and uh, beg them to teach you how to get it to work. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, so we want, we, want to, we, we want to knock down those barriers as much as we can, and we discourage that. Uh, many of the things I'm talking about from the perspective of Git farm are also available on code commit. So just to tie this back to what you can do, if you want to steal our unicorns, I would say many of the things we've invested that we found high leverage for our own software change processes, we've baked into, uh, into code commit. Um, so a lot of this stuff is available for an AWS customer as well. All right, so we've written a piece of software locally. We've gotten it to work. We've maybe tested it in our uh, test environment. Um, now it's time to actually start the change release process. So the change release process typically begins uh, with a code review or a pull request uh, either way. Um, if you went and looked at Amazon's code review tools, they're very vanilla, right? It, uh, it shows you a diff. It, show, it lets you comment on a particular line. Eventually, people can click a button that says ship it that endorses your change is ready to go. Nothing is particularly exciting about it. Uh, so you could view that as kind of the foundational tool that we, you know, looks like every other code review tool out there. The place that we found value, uh, especially for our tier one services, was putting a rules engine on top of it to be more specific about the type of people we want reviewing code. Um, we found that, uh, especially for a tier one service, we don't want just any member of the team to sign off on a piece of code. We typically want a more senior member of the team, right? If we're going to go change uh, the way S3 stores objects, <laughs> that's an incredibly sensitive piece of software. We really do want our most trusted engineers to have uh, taken a look at it and endorsed it. If you are in an environment where you have compliance or regulatory mechanisms, oftentimes you are asked to have a third party or a person outside of the team review a piece of code and sign off on it. Amazon's no different. We have some of these regulatory requirements uh, that we need to meet for our customers. And so we, we use code review as a great gating mechanism, right? We can say, uh, this piece of code has to be signed off by two sen senior engineers and a member of this auditing group or before it can proceed, right? So again, we try and front load these things as early as possible. We don't want change the day before production to be getting reviewed by an auditor and, and uh, come up with some small reason why we can't release it. We want to catch that extremely early in the development process. So we invest a lot in a rules engine that sits on top of code review. The build process. So you know, um, eventually, you will get people to ship your code, um, either by crying at their desk or begging them, uh, offering them to get them lunch, or just writing really great code, which is not usually how I get code shipped. Um, now it's time to build it. So you, of course, you can build locally. Uh, you, the local build looks a lot like the production build. But if something is going to go into production, is, is going to be released to customers, it's going to get built on special purpose build servers. So we can fingerprint it and check it and make sure that we uh, have a consistent release process. Uh, one of the interesting choices within Amazon's ecosystem is that we have a global dependency closure. So um, most teams or most companies of Amazon size uh, begin to do dependency resolution at the team level or at the local level, right? So everyone has their own local Maven repository with the things that they depend on. Um, Amazon has chosen to go a different way. We typically, we have a single global dependency closure for most things. Uh, this comes with advantages and disadvantages. If you are a library service, uh, this means that when you build your code and it's successfully build, built, it gets built against all of your downstream dependencies. This is incredibly valuable if we want to make sure that uh, like core essential library code, uh, the way we do marshalling and unmarshalling of data objects in our web service uh, infrastructure, as an example, uh, is consistent, right? We're not going to break a downstream service that's kind of depending on us. That also makes builds for uh, core libraries incredibly expensive, right? It takes a long time to build against all of your dependencies. Uh, but, there are, but we find, like, overall, it, it's more advantages than disadvantages. The other place this really helps us is we can pick any particular software package in the Amazon ecosystem and quickly answer uh, where is it in use in the field, right? So example would be uh, Heartbleed, which was a security vulnerability to OpenSSL. It was very easy in Amazon to answer the question, well, who's actually compromised? Who's using this bad version of software? We can go look and see every single person that declared a dependency on it and kind of quickly go uh, sweep it out of our ecosystem. Uh, when builds happen, of course, unit testing happens, static analysis happens. 
Uh, we also block verboten software, so we could go back to the OpenSSL version. Once we have a piece of software that we do not want to see in production, we can actually blacklist it, right? And at build time, uh, we'll, we'll actively block the usage of these uh, nefarious packages, right? Again, because we have a global dependency closure, it lets us do these things with more accuracy. We don't have to go to every single team and figure out who's using what. So it built. I'm always incredibly excited when something builds because it usually doesn't for me. Uh, now it's time to actually start releasing it, right? So putting it on our integration and one-boxing and testing and production environments. Uh, we usually start with a pre-mortem, which involves uh, getting the author of the code in a room with some, tr some other trusted people. It could be members of the team. It could be senior engineers. It could be uh, dependencies. And we talk about all the things that are going to go wrong when we release this nefarious piece of code, right? So remember, we're assuming that all code is designed to give us the worst day possible, right? So we start from that assumption, and then we start to think about, well, what's the worst day possible, right? Uh, how bad of a change could it be? Uh, what are all the things that we depend on? How is it going to impact them? Does it mutate state? Uh, what state does it mutate? What if we had a data corruption issue? What would that look like? How would we undo it? How would we detect it? We ask all, you know, we, we basically go through the mental exercise of when this thing goes bad, what are we going to do about it, right? How will we mitigate it? Uh, this is an incredibly valuable process, especially for a tier one critical service. We want to think through all of these things up front as much as possible so that when um, the unthinkable actually happens, we're prepared and we can uh, take steps to mitigate it. Everyone is very focused on continuous delivery or continuous deployment. Amazon loves continuous delivery. When you uh, check in a piece of code, our goal is to make sure it's automated all the way through. That being said, the worst thing to do is to claim that you are uh, continuously delivering software without actually having a process that honors the tenets of continuous delivery. So we would much rather prefer a process that still has human judgment in it than a dangerous process that isn't really ready to be fully automated, right? So we will take, um, we'll take the hit on uh, fully automated if we have to until we can get things to that point. Uh, when we're talking about a large critical service, we're typically still going to audit not every single software change. You know, many, many small bug fixes are not worth this time. But if we're making a critical change to a critical service, we're going to pause and think about it before we release it and not just solely rely on automation. All right. It built. We talked about all of the bad things that could happen. We wrote them down. We've got a plan of execution. Let's start actually deploying. So off we go, right? We're going to deploy our code through uh, test environments, through integration environments, and then ultimately to production. A software change in AWS or in Amazon is not a single thing. I'm not just going to update the production servers. We have servers uh, all over the world, right? And so a software change is really a long march across the globe for us. Just to kind of motivate this a little bit, Amazon currently has 15 regions with uh, several more announced, and I suspect that we're not going to stop building regions anytime soon. Within those uh, regions, which are globally distributed, we have 44 availability zones. Each of those availability zones we want to isolate uh, failures in, so we uh, don't want to update all of the availability zones at the exact same time. Uh, if you were staging code into CloudFront, there's 100 pops also globally distributed throughout the world. Uh, and did I mention that this is just for AWS? Many of our processes also work for Amazon.com, so, which is a, a, an even more uh, mixed ecosystem, right? So we, in, in Amazon.com, we have to think about how to put code on a robot in, on a factory floor. Uh, we have to think about how to put it on a drone. Uh, many, many other different permutations. So here's the software pipeline. So <laughs> uh, this is our internal pipelining tool. This is actually just a screenshot of it. Uh, left to right is release stages, right? So on the, on the leftmost side here is a package import, a build, and then each of those vertical columns there is, is a stage that it's going to be released to. Um, you will probably notice that on the far right-hand side, it's actually cut off. This isn't all of it. It probably extends another half page, right? So, so if, I, if we tried to do this with humans, right, if we said, okay, let's write down all the places we need to go and, you know, uh, We'll write a, a CM that lists everything, and then uh, do we have any interns or junior engineers that we can put on this problem for a month? And they'll click through, you know, absolutely untenable, right? Uh, the, the goal of a continuous delivery process and 
and the goal of all of our release processes at Amazon is consistency, right? We want the exact same process every single time we release change. We don't want it to deviate. Deviation is oftentimes when we find surprises. And so we want consistency. We want it to go through the same way every time. So we have to invest in pipelining or release automation, right? Many of you have probably built a form of this with Jenkins or you know, pick your favorite CI or continuous integration or continuous delivery tool. Uh, each one of those vertical columns is validation that's happening in that stage. So that's testing, um, sign-off, uh, blockers. We'll, we'll talk about all of this. Um, so as you can see, like uh, kind of an untenable thing if you wanted to do it with a person. So let's talk about release primitives. So uh, as I said, we, Amazon has built um, pipelines or code pipelines. This is basically, as it sounds, a pipelining tool for releasing software. So every single package build um, gets pushed into the front of that change, and then it marches through each one of those stages that I showed on the previous slide. Um, Changes can catch up to each other and get bundled together. That's fine. We don't mind if, if software uh, catches up and passes each other. Uh, it's going to end up running in the same environment in production anyways. And again, we want to catch changes as early as possible. So the quicker we can run and execute code together on the same virtual machine, the better, right? So uh, we're, we're perfectly happy to, um, to funnel changes all into the same release. We're also perfectly happy to kick out a change when we find out that it's bad and push another one into, into the front of it. So that's the basic pipeline, you know, left to right, it flows. Some of the things that we've invested over the years that we found high leverage for our environment, manual approvals. So as I said, we want a continuous delivery hands-off process. Um, but the worst thing to do is to claim something is continuous delivery when it's not. Uh, that's just uh, being a cowboy. That's just kind of rolling the dice with every software change. Instead, we, we want gating mechanisms. We want to be able to pause a, a, a software release process and let a human uh, make a judgment call, either subjectively or objectively, uh, and uh, sign off on a change for it to go through. We also use this as a form of compliance. We, we prefer to do compliance checks at code review time, but some of them actually need to happen uh, with the actual production servers as they're being rolled out. Time windows. Everyone has the story of that time that we released that code change Friday afternoon before the long holiday weekend, and it blew up, and then we all spent the rest of the weekend. Oh, everyone's so sad, right? So uh, Amazon, we, we absolutely hate that story. It's, it's not a happy story. So we institute time windows. Uh, for a tier one service, we, are, uh, we used to, back in the day, we used to deploy things in off hours, right? So we would, we would uh, wait till 3 a.m. on a Sunday, uh, when no one was using the website and a couple guys would come in and we'd buy them coffee and they would make the change. Um, that, we, what we came to discover, that was a really bad time to make change. One, the team is not engaged. It's just the people who had to come in on a Sunday. They're, uh, they're usually tired. Uh, they're not very focused. They just want to get it done with and, and move on with their life. Um, it's the wrong kind of environment to make a, a critical change in. So instead, we've changed our, our philosophy, and we typically make code changes during core working hours, right? Wherever you happen to be, right? So nine to five, uh, not on Fridays. Uh, if you're going to deploy on Friday, you have to have been out the door by lunchtime. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, we found that it works a lot better. Testing, there are a million different ways software is tested in the Amazon ecosystem. There's uh, basic... Um, Smoke testing, does the API return the, the value I expected? We also do a thing that we call ready fork, which is essentially uh, we will A-B test a particular code change, um, both from a known good set of production data. So we'll look at latency and error rates, and we'll compare them to the candidate change, and we'll see if they are uh, matching, essentially, or, or correlated. Uh, we can also set a certain number of requests, right? So typically what people do is they'll just put a change out and kind of wait and hope that it gets called enough to be confident. Um, we can actually just say, like, we're not gonna, this change will not go forward until we've seen 1,000 requests against it, and the error rate across those 1,000 requests has to meet a certain threshold, right? Uh, or a certain latency or both, right? So uh, there's many different types of testing. There's also, of course, uh, scale and performance testing where we're looking at uh, the response times for mission-critical uh, calls, right? Uh, DynamoDB, as you would imagine, is extremely latency-sensitive, so we're paying very close attention to uh, response times for any new code change on the critical request path. Global and on cords. Uh, for those of you who are not Lean Six Sigma junkies, um, uh, an and on cord is essentially uh, 
a physical object as well as a concept. Uh, in Toyota's assembly lines, they were the first to kind of introduce these, uh, the concept of an andon cord. So anyone on a uh, production factory for a Toyota car, uh, the person who's screwing in the bolts of the wheels, the person who's uh, shining the windshield before it leaves the factory floor, every single one of the people on that assembly line has a cord next to their station. And at any point in time, they can pull that cord and it will stop the entire assembly line process in a Toyota factory. They are encouraged to uh, pull that cord anytime they find an issue of quality or of safety, right? When Toyota released this, it blew people's minds, right? Because stopping an a, a, a assembly line factory was incredibly expensive and incredibly taboo. Um, Toyota wanted to make sure that quality was, was job number one, and they empowered everyone to do this. We loved this idea at Amazon, and so we built it into many of our pipelinings and our release processes. So across our company, any individual engineer can detect a software problem uh, and can immediately uh, pull an, a global and on cord and stop all change across the company, right? So again, if you're operating a tier one service and you know you have many, many dependencies upstream from you, uh, S3 is a great example. It's a highly leveraged service. Uh, and you see a problem, you can pull an and on cord and say, you know, something looks strange here. I don't want anyone deploying software until we figure out what it is, right? And that will actually stop software globally across the company. Uh, we also use andon cords uh, for particularly sensitive times of the year. Uh, we don't change a lot of software right before reInvent, as you would imagine. <laughs> and so we can use these andon cording mechanisms to kind of block software from going out, uh, and people can get exceptions when they need them. Finally, attribution and roles is very important to the pipelining process. We want to be able to, for any single software change, no matter where it is on that long pipeline, tie it all the way back to a, a code review and a code change in a person, right? Uh, being able to do that is incredibly valuable uh, if we need to do escalation of, for a bad software change and figure out like what happened, where did this come from. Um, being able to kind of quickly trace back to uh, origin state is a really important thing. And of course, along with that, we have different roles so we can access control different parts of this release process. For the most part, once a code is checked in, it's never touched by a person again, but even still, there are, there are particular cases where we want different roles. Okay, I'm gonna switch to talk a little bit about the actual, we've finally gotten to the point where we want to put new bits on a, on a box, right? And so, um, what are the things that we've instituted at deploy time? So when we're actually gonna update um, a collection of servers. The first thing that we, um, that we expect everyone to use kind of company-wide is automatic rollbacks. So when we release a, a piece of software, if at any point in time during the software change um, and I registered alarm goes off, so this could be like a CloudWatch alarm if you're using code deploy, uh, or for internal services, we have other alarming mechanisms. As soon as an alarm goes off, uh, the deployment system will detect this, will stop the change, and will automatically issue a rollback, right? So a human is not involved in the decision to, to mitigate or undo a software change. Over the years, this has saved us minutes upon minutes and then hours upon hours and days and days of outage time. What we know is that the mean time to resolution, the time at which a um, an event was detectable on a graph to the time an engineer logs in, troubleshoots, and fixes it versus having an automated system do that same process, it cuts it, a, it, cuts it down by about a fifth, right? So it's, it's extremely faster to have automated systems perform automatic rollbacks. Incremental release, um, the best way to have a bad day is to release software to every server all at the same time. A much better process is, of course, to release in batches, right? So update a single server, uh, compare it against the rest of the fleet, update a couple more servers, a couple more, a couple more. As you go, you can accelerate this process, and so many of our tools will accelerate the software release process as we build more and more confidence in it. But when we introduce a change to a new region or to the first region, things move incredibly slowly at the start. Now, those things are all automated systems, so it's not like a human is sitting there kind of like looking at their clock, uh, but, but we want to make sure that things start off slow and then kind of ramp up as we, get, <clears throat> as we build confidence. Again, our internal software deployment tools use this as well as our external. So Code Deploy has this concept of incremental release as well. Uh, health tracking. This is another form of incremental release. So imagine that we update uh, a set of servers and then halfway through uh, a problem happens, right? So, and let's make it an even worse scenario. So this is one of those post-mortem scenarios. We didn't actually test the rollback, right? So um, many times in a tier one service, as part of that postmortem, we will actually institute that we roll out something halfway and then try and roll it back and figure out if we can do it. 
that is a bit untenable for every single change. We're, if, we're, if we're shipping code um, more than once a second, we can't do that for every change. And so eventually, we will have a bad day where this happens, where we get halfway out the door, we realize that we can't automatically remediate it, and now we need to roll forward with a patch of some sort. The worst thing to do would be to uh, deploy and then have that deployment update the, the blue servers, which are actually working just fine. They're on a known good version of software. We want to update the broken red ones first as quickly as possible. If you're not keeping track of where, all, all the way down to the virtual machine, where you've put software, what version it's on, and what is the known state of that software, this can be incredibly troublesome when you actually have a problem. So instead, um, all of our deployment systems keep track of this uh, health tracking for you. They ensure that um, we know exactly which servers are in which state and which ones we are in a bad state, and we'll prioritize those first when we do a software update or a software change. We'll also, when we do a rollback, of course, prioritize the most recently changed ones as well. This, again, shrinks the time to resolution for an event. It also reduces the blast radius of a problem, well, which is good. Um, change providence. So just like we talked about in pipelining where we want to know uh, an individual uh, that made a change, we also want to do that for the actual uh, built binaries that we're going to put onto compute instances that could be virtual machines or Lambda or wherever we're going to put it. Um, we also want to do checksumming and fingerprinting, right? So we want to be able to say, for, again, from an auditing and compliance standpoint, that the, builds that, were, that the bits that were built and signed on a build server are the exact same ones that ended up on the end host, uh, so that there's no uh, man in the middle tampering. We can, we can form a chain of trust all the way back to the code commit. And of course, again, we want to make sure that things are access controlled. So we can say that no one can actually physically log in or mutate that box. We also have continuous auditing mechanisms so that, uh, especially for our tier one services, if someone were to get around the first line of defense and figure out how to get on a box and manipulate state on it, we actually have sweepers that go and, and look at all the fingerprinting in production of all of our servers and figure out if something's changed. And we kick those hosts out of the fleet if we ever detect something. So these are, uh, hopefully you're getting um, the idea. We, we build these building block services and we, and we build and build and build on top of them. For each of our tier one services and across the company, we ask teams to continue to adopt new best practices as we kind of identify them. And so everyone is on a different version of that journey. But for the most part, our team, these, these mechanisms that we've come up with are, are heavily used by everyone's software release processes. Uh, when we talk about our most mission critical services, they're going to use all of these mechanisms as well as some highly optimized ones for their, uh, their own release processes. Let's talk about managing infrastructure. So as I said, uh, a big aspect of any code change is not just the software change, but the ecosystem of other pieces of configuration, other dependencies, other web services, the virtual machines we run on, the amount of memory we've given them, the, uh, the configuration that they're in, the, uh, which version of, a, of the operating system we're using, what patch state it's in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Amazon has a goal uh, to build new AWS regions in a single day. Every single service team is asked to be able to build out an entire region once the you know, infrastructure, the physical hardware is there in a single day. Many of my teams have done this, and it's pretty impressive to see. Um, we've, we've invested a lot, again, in that pipelining mechanism. So just like for a software change, we have a pipeline that flows across states. Uh, we also make all of our infrastructure and configuration changes in the same way. We make heavy use of CloudFormation, so CloudFormation is a template-driven configuration system for many AWS services. And on top of that, we've built our own templating system that we call Live Pipeline Templates, or LPT. This is basically to extend CloudFormation and allow it to mutate state for pieces of infrastructure that are not AWS services. So for any uh, service, there literally is a, a file or a collection of files which represents the entire web service. Uh, and that can be pushed into a region and, and built out within a day. Uh, it might not sound impressive, but when you start talking about deploying to tens or hundreds of thousands of different services in different, different configuration states, uh, this is way more than you could possibly uh, keep track of with a wiki page or some notes that uh, a system engineer wrote down. Right? It's, it's completely, again, untenable. This one is so untenable that I don't have a picture to show you how complicated it would be. It's kind of hard to even visualize. Um, once we've done that, 
we made it, right? So <laughs> our change has finally flown through. It's gone on this long journey across the world. It's gone through the gauntlet. Um, the process has deemed it worthy, and is, it's now in production, and life is good, right? Holy code change. Unfortunately not, right? Um, the job is never done for the process. Um, what we know is that many changes, once they make it in production, can look good for a very long time and then turn bad quickly, right? There can be uh, edge cases or call patterns that we couldn't possibly have tested for that, uh, that uh, manifest themselves in ugly ways. There can be new best practices or uh, discovered bad configurations that we want to drive out of our software change process. And so even for production services, they are continuously monitored and audited. Uh, this is a tool that we use um, called Policy Engine. It's literally just a list of known bad configurations and risks that we find in our uh, production environments. Uh, and top to bottom, you know, critical risks that you need to go fix absolutely right now, all the way down to sort of informational risks. And we track changes over time. This is an incredibly valuable tool for a team because you can see, is a problem getting better or worse? How is it changing over time? Are we actually investing and paying down debt? Are we just kind of living with the risk forever and ever? Uh, it also lets us focus on what's important. Uh, for a company of Amazon size, we really can't have every single team uh, trying to decide what matters most. Instead, we ask people to, um, to use Policy Engine to kind of help them make those decisions. We also continuously test against production. So a massive amount of uh, code calls to our production endpoints are from our own canary tests, right? So we are constantly, uh, multiple times every second or every minute, calling our production web services uh, with known scenarios and seeing that we get back the correct results. We absolutely want to catch problems before customers do. And the only way we can really do that is continuously test against production all the time. OK, I think we're, we're just about done. To kind of wrap it up and hopefully bring it back to your own uh, processes, uh, Amazon standardizes a ton of the software development process by a common platform. So as I said before, we invest in common tooling and uh, we make that available to you. Uh, we use that tooling to drive, uh, to enforce our culture, uh, and we automate everything through that tooling. We encourage an open marketplace, so we, we tell people to start with the baseline tooling and then to innovate on top of it. Uh, and then we look for opportunities to fund winners in the marketplace. We immediately pay those winners back by making their uh, tools and options broadly available. Amazon ships so much um, because we continuously ship. We're big fans of pipelining software th um, through the front and, and pushing out change as quickly as we possibly can. We don't go crazy fast. We actually move pretty cautiously, but we're constantly making changes. We're, we believe in a rapid, tight iteration cycle. And as I said before, Amazon's doubling down on our public tooling. Uh, many of the tools and services available to customers are the same things we use to release our own critical tier one services. And so um, if, you're, if you want to steal the unicorn, so to speak, steal our processes. OK. Uh, I think I just finished on an hour, so that's pretty good. Thank you for your time, everyone. Appreciate you coming out. Um, yeah, thank you.